0: Hi listeners, Delaney here, assistant producer of the Sausage of Science podcast. A brief warning, this week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Our guest today, fairly well, Dr. Benjamin Campbell is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I feel like we've been on some sessions together, but we both teach neuroanthropology. He has done a lot of research in neuroanthropology and, and excels in it, but he wrote a paper a few years ago about endurance running and trance states among the Jutwansi, so I know he's, he's also interested broadly in the kinds of things that we talk about, but his specialization is the evolution of the human life course. And he focuses more specifically on steroid hormones and how they form links between energetics and the timing of important life events like childhood growth, puberty, and getting old. Recent work has been on something we've recently talked about uh, to another guest. We talked to Courtney Helfrich about her studies of adrenarchy and DHEA. stands for, what does that stand for?
0: dihydroepiandosterone.
1: And the sulfated version, which is always in the same articles. So these are biomarkers that are being more commonly or increasingly used, I guess, with specific reference to this part of life.
0: So my interest in this, I think, is probably very ancillary and applied in a different way. So having taught anthropology of sports this past semester, student favorite topics almost always revolve around performance-enhancing drugs and, of course, steroid use. And though we didn't put it in the questions, I might totally ask him his thoughts because steroid use is exploding in younger kids these days, high school and younger, in order to get a competitive advantage. And I'm so curious what that does to development and what kind of changes and problems might be associated with that kind of usage really early on.
1: why don't we bring him on and ask him that $100,000 question.
0: Hello, Ben. Kara, how are you this morning? How about you, Chris?
1: I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good. Chris, you look a little sleepy.
2: <laughs> it's the end of the semester. <laughs> I know you and Kara often talk about your, you know, current status. And well, anyway, I'm very happy
1: to be on here. Thanks for thanks for having me, guys. Well, uh, I just came from a jog with one of my kids, so you're not wrong.
0: Anyway, so Ben, thank you so much for joining a Zoom meeting, as I'm sure, like most of us. There have been a preponderance of Zoom meetings and it can be pretty exhausting. So thank you so much for, for fitting another one into your schedule.
2: Well, good. I, I've listened to several of your podcasts and I, I think it's a real service to the Human Biology Association. The chance for people to talk about what they do with knowledgeable people. And the chance for graduate students to hear this, and I think your origin stories are wonderful because, you know, this is, none of them are straight lines, and this is a field where people have sort of grab onto an intellectual curiosity and have a passion for it, you know? So we're all a little bit
0: nuts that way. I love how you are probably one of our more prepared interviewees, because you already know what our first question is going to be, and you're ready for it. And that's going to be your origin story, Ben. So how about you walk us through? Well, so
2: when I was an undergraduate at Indiana University, I don't know what first came to my attention, but sociobiology was just coming out. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the most powerful idea I have heard. I need to follow this up. And it wasn't the kind of thing that was in classes. I mean, it was so new. And I think, you know, I don't know why. There wasn't a class that I could take. But uh, my friend Peter Wiley and I decided to form the Sociobiology Club. And Peter was somehow a, a campus, you know, organizational guy. So he got some money from the university. And we invited Napoleon Chagnon to come give a talk. I had no idea, you know, I mean, it was just totally fascinating, totally fascinating. And so at that point, I didn't know how to pursue this. And I'd already been in school for a while. Shh, Don't tell anyone that. And, um, and then I took a course with Bob Meyer and just a human evolution course. And I thought, oh, this is how I want to do it. So at some point, we were lucky enough The APAs were in Indianapolis and the students were volunteers. It was a chance to be exposed. I went to a session. Milford Walpoff was giving it to somebody. And uh, I think there were some ad hominem comments in that. And I thought science is hard enough. I I can't do it if there's going to be that involved, you know. So human evolution is out. Now, you know, knowing what I know now, he may have just been, you know, speaking normally. But at the time, I thought, this is just too difficult. So the Human Biology Association had a book, a little blue book, Programs in Human Biology. So I went through that. I looked at the places that had good programs. I applied to several of them. And two really strong programs were Penn State and Harvard. So I applied to those, and I I chose Harvard. And at the time, I said I wanted to study orangutans. Now, what that had to do with human biology, I had no idea, but it would have been really cool, right? And I think that's kind of the explorer scientist in most of us, you know? So anyway, then I took a course with Peter Ellison, and I thought, okay, this is this is who I want to work with. And I actually told Peter lately, oh, yeah, after I started teaching human biology, I realized the material in the course, nothing special. You must have been a really good teacher, Peter, because you just... You got me so interested. So I did a I did a dissertation with Peter and you know, we published one or two papers out of it, but it wasn't anything to write home about. And then I went off and did a postdoc with Dick Udry at the Carolina Population Center. You know, that was so interesting to me. I thought, well, I've learned anthropology, now I better learn some other stuff, right? Dick was starting to do hormones. Dick was an amazing guy. He ended up running this $25 million adolescent health sex program. I mean, just he was doing sex research in North Carolina when Jesse Helms was a senator there. So I had the chance to to work with Paul Leslie, and, and we wrote a grant, and we did work on males in Turkana. At the same time, uh, I got some money with Dick, and I started working in Zimbabwe as well. And I don't, I really don't recommend that, you know.
1: What do you mean? You don't recommend what?
2: I don't recommend doing two uh, international projects at the same time, you know.
1: Students do one project at a time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do one project at a time, right. Uh, You know, you can have another thing on the horizon. So, you know, make a long story short, did various things. And then about 15 years ago, I decided I wanted to start working on adrenarchy. So I wrote a paper, and it didn't go very far because there really wasn't much known. But Karen Stryer gave me this advice, which was keep active, you know. And, of course, that's pretty minimalist advice, but sometimes that's the best advice there is, you know. You. And you don't really know what you're doing. So why don't you just stay active? So I guess my point about that for students is, hey, it never quits. If you're intellectually interested, your story doesn't quit. And so here I am. I mean, you see my hair's gray. I'm not going to tell you much more than that. It's grayer than Chris's. Um, <laughs> You know, and 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 there's a whole new area of really fascinating and, I think, important research that I'm really starting in on now.
1: But I know both of us have met in talking interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary neuroscience, anthropology. And so I definitely feel your desire to be a broadly interested anthropologist karen's advice is is sage when you need grant funding and to develop a field site one of the reasons i got an anthropology is i could study whatever the hell i wanted to (laughs) yeah yeah because so many things interest me and i see you as a similar type of personality so let's dive in on on your your most recent research that's brand new. It's called DHEAS and Human Development and Evolutionary Perspective. And it's in frontiers of endocrinology. And we just interviewed Courtney Helfrich a little bit about her DHEA, DHEAS research. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background because those acronyms are not going to be familiar to a lot of people. So tell us what they are and why they're important. And then a little bit about adrenarchy. And the name, of course, is telling because it's, it's
2: the period where the adrenal gland starts producing DHEAS and, and DHEA. Now, DHEA, dehydroepiandrosterone, okay? So it's just a steroid hormone that's in that whole cortisol, testosterone, you know, biosynthetic pathway. The sulfate is actually the major production, of the adrenal gland, it comes out as sulfated because that gives it a presumably a longer half-life in the blood system. But it's taken up by cells and it's metabolized and probably active in the DHEA form, although both forms are active. But DHEA is then metabolized into testosterone and estrogen. Now, the key here for that is for a long time, people thought that it had to be turned into androgens or testosterone to be active. But we now know it has non-genomic effects. So, you know, it had to be picked up by the steroid receptors because we know about that. And for a long time, people said, where's the DHEA receptor? There isn't one. Oh, it's acting on the IGF-1 receptor. It's acting on a whole set of different receptors. And so it does have independent effects from the steroid hormones. Now, the reason I call that article DHEAS and DHEA rather than adrenarchy is because the whole definitional issue of adrenarchy is so mixed up that it confuses everybody. So think about puberty for a minute, right? Puberty is a biological maturational process associated with reproduction, But adolescence is the cultural staging, right? That can change cross-culturally. But puberty is, uh, also has pubark, you know, it has the reproductive changes, but it also has the changes in breasts and the other secondary sexual characteristics. So you really, we know to be careful about what part of it we're talking about. And of course, puberty is literally in your face. It's supposed to be in your face, right? It's a powerful social signal. And that draws our attention to it, causes some confusion, uh, but it's also associated with sexual maturation. As I used to say when I worked with Dick Udry, you know, everyone's interested in adolescent sex. Adolescents because they're doing it, parents because they're doing it, and the government because they don't want them to be doing it. Oh, you know, I don't. The parents are somewhere in there too. But anyway, the thing about adrenarche is the external effects are so much less clear. And I wrote an article back on this in 2011. Basically, people used to think, well, maybe it drives uh, bone growth. Yeah, it's related to bone growth, but not growth in height. So there's no growth spurt. And then, um, yeah, it, it, it activates the sebaceous glands. And, you know, if you talk to moms, yeah, my kid got a little oily around then, you know, if they're observant moms, but that's pretty minor. So it's been very difficult you know, to get that kind of intuitive uh, grasp that says, okay, this is what it is. Okay, but now, if you had a chance to ask about humans, what might be special about humans? You know, if you were an anthropologist from Mars, what's your first two adaptive traits? Oh, it's a big brain, right? I mean, mean, come on, if there's things special about humans, it's a big brain. So, Drenarchy surely related to that.
1: I was going to let Kara answer that one, but thank you.
2: Yeah, okay. <laughs> but anyway, so the point is it must have something to do with that. But a couple of years ago now, the the NIH uh, normal agent brain study, I mean, this is gold standard stuff. This is 300 kids, longitudinal stuff. The data they have is amazing, right? Actually, it's directly related variation in salivary, DHEA, to changes in the cortex from about 4 to 12. Okay. What's the study called again? It's the, it's the NIH normal brain developments. And of course, they've done lots of different kinds of things. And this was just one little part of it. So, okay, so it's related to the brain. Now, that's just the start, right? But but what's happening at five to eight or six to seven when we think adrenarche and this initial increase in DHEA is coming up? Well, you know, we now know that's when maximal brain u- glucose utilization is going on. And Chris Kazawa has a nice... Paper. I mean, there's that's first shown in 1998 by Chukani et al. But, but anyway, so, okay, so DHA must have something to do with a five to eight transition. This is the point at which kids start to, um, as my colleague David Lancey says, get common sense, get culturally inculcated, right? You have to understand that's also important because everything you need to know you learned in kindergarten, right? So, you know, there's the marker. Oh, and the other marker is Catholic confirmation. That's the point at which you have moral responsibility. That's the point at which you understand the cultural rules.
0: So I, I was born and raised Catholic in a Catholic family. And so you're talking about this transition period from ages five to eight with, the, with DHE transition. But confirmation happens at age 12.
2: Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Now, there's a whole history about this.
0: Okay, I'm so curious.
2: Yeah, yeah you, you got to go back and read on this. So the church decided that uh, when confirmation was, I, I'm sorry, I don't, you know, I didn't keep notes, but, but, you know, it wasn't the Council of Nicaea, but it was sometime in the 1500s that they decided when confirmation should be. And uh, actually, at some point, it was five to six. And, and I think it still is in some place. I mean I'm not an authority on church history. so
0: like five to six, again, this is being a much younger, you yeah. know compared to the 1500s. Five to six is now um, first communion. Usually that actually
2: happens. Okay, okay. so first communion, okay, so may, okay, so anyway again, see that's the cultural phenomenon, right? We We throw these labels around, we use them as we need them, et cetera. So thank you for correcting me. Okay, so 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 DHEA is involved in this onset of middle childhood, the five-day transition. Now, here's the thing is, that, of course, many people think, I mean, Barry Bogan certainly has argued this, that juvenile period is what's unique about the human life history. Adrenarchy is associated with the assertion, insertion of that extended juvenile period. And just to get back to the orangutans for a minute, they wean their babies at around seven. So, what seems to have happened in humans is that weaning has been directly shortened. That's opened up this period from about three to seven, because orangutan kids are independent at seven. Now, what, do you, what does mom's milk have in it? Oh, all sorts of really wonderful fatty acids and ketones for brain development. So, as Peter Ellison once said to me, you know, First, there's DHES, in between, there's mother's milk, and then there's DHES again. So DHES is very prominent in the fetal development, but it seems to be as important as it may be with meat, it's actually metabolizing adipose tissue. And so that becomes important because once you go off mom's milk, you
1: need fatty acids for the brain. You especially need DHA. So it looks like DHEA is playing an important role there. I want to put a pin in this importance of meat, and then this importance of this period as a time when cognitive development happens. You use theory of mind in the paper, which psychologists, cognitive scientists talk about a lot, which is this is very important social feature, supposedly underpinning consciousness. So can you hone in a little bit on, on that triangulation? I'm happy to. So, you know,
2: you mentioned before the interdisciplinarity, and I happen to go back and read this paper, one of these papers I sent you about Uh, Embodiment, neuroanthropology, and embodiment. And there's a there's a phrase in there, something about you know we got to keep looking for empirical ways and do courageous interdisciplinarity, right? Well, I got to put that in my wall along with this most review of my most recent paper, where they complained that the introduction was long, complicated, and intense. Ah, it's the first time I've gotten a review that said, it. you know, that didn't work because it was intense. Okay. So sometimes just doing science is courageous, you know. Here's the thing. During middle childhood, uh, Rebecca Sachs has looked at the right temporal parietal junction. Now, the fascinating thing about the brain is, and it's a little, it's a little uh, frustrating too, is that it is a recurrent re-entry system. It is always integrating information from the bottom up, but it reintegrates it. So here's here's the example that I like. The information coming up from the limbic system, from the amygdala, right? We all know how powerful that is. And by the way, it's not just about fear, it's about attention. But the problem is that two things of the two-thirds of the things in the world are negative and you really want to pay attention to the bad things because they might get you, right? So the amygdala sends signals right up to the anterior cingulate cortex, but it also sends signals over to the insula. Now, I don't mean to be in the weeds here about this, but I do believe in mentioning parts of the brain because if you read science journalists, they also say, oh, and the brain does that. Yeah, duh. We need to know the part of the brain so that when we learn more about it we can compare the parts that are involved right so a signal goes up to the insula and that's that's um put together with sensation from, from your body and basically it tells you how's your body doing hey i got full stuff aboard my muscles are all relaxed i got full energy supplies i'm in good shape that then gets sent back right, that information with the emotional impulse, limbic system says, pay attention. This other signal says, here's what I got to pay attention with. And those are integrated in the anterior cingulate cortex to say, do I need to act or not? Oh, I'm relaxed. It's just a bird, you know? Oh, shit, I'm on the edge of my seat. It's a bird. Maybe it's going to knock me off, right? The anterior cingulate then decides whether to send it up to the prefrontal, which initiates conscious action. I'll stop on that, but it, it, it acts at all levels. And the neuroscientists have used this uh, abstraction thing to their benefit, because they just, you know, once they, they solve something, they just say, oh, but it's more complicated. There's a higher level of abstraction, you know.
0: Possibly take us on a bit of a detour because of my own kind of personal academic interests and because no. of some of the things I teach at Notre Dame. So I taught an anthropology of sports class this past mm-hmm. semester. And one of the absolute favorite topics, and this is true anytime I've taught exercise fizz or biomechanics, anthropology, of sports, is always performance enhancing drugs. Mm. And students are both fascinated by it and I think also a little too curious by it in a way of like, tell me what to do. And so I know that kids, you know, from five to eight in this transition period are typically not using performance enhancing drugs, but in middle school, junior high, high school, like rates are going through the roof of steroid use. And given everything that you just said about how pervasive these kinds of hormones act throughout the body, both on the brain and then also individual organ development, because this is so tough to study, at least from an experimental point of view, what do you think is going on with the, you know, these younger kids who are using performance enhancing drugs? How could it be altering not only their development physically, but also cognitively?
2: Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's a really important question, right? And, and I think you're right. These hormones are really powerful you know and and we sort of we've sort of forgotten that because so many other things are going on i remember a long time ago i was reading an article just a boston globe article about some guy down at the neighborhood gym you know they were saying look most most of the pro athletes may take this but they they have a very specific objective and they can't screw it up right so there are limits to what they can do now they pay for it later in their life. But they're saying that's the corner weightlifter that really pays. And they had a story about a guy who was taking testosterone, and he he just talked about the fact that, you know, I want to lift this much weight. And I can't do it. I just blew my knee out. God damn, I'm pissed at my knee. You know, that's the so-called Roy Rage, right? And that, that got a lot of discussion for a while. I think the things with the kids are much more subtle. And th- that's because, right, what they're doing is they want the superficial outcomes. And it's changing the way they relate to people because it's disturbing their mentalizing capacity. It's disturbing their ability to read other people's minds in a neutral fashion. If you're on testosterone, you're going to read everybody as angry. And, and adolescents are already do that. We know that. I mean, they're already biased towards that. We know that, right? So, I mean, I don't. I, I'm not an expert in this area, and I, you know, but that's just my sort of speculation on it. That brings us back to this issue about mentalizing, and and I think you know this is where, as an anthropologist, and I must say, I always say that with scarce quotes around it because I was working in, with the R.E.L. in Northern Kenya, and uh, my research assistant came up to me and said. I mean, we talked a little bit, and he said, you know what? You're a funny anthropologist, and, and I don't know what he meant, but clearly many people share that perspective. So anyway, the thing the thing about uh, what you learn from hunter-gatherers, and there's a lot of really fascinating work coming out from the Aka now because there are enough of them, and they're different groups. So what you see basically is that you start playing at five to eight, boys and girls do that. You're starting to engage the world in this playful way, right? You're starting to do things and get the feedback and figure out what's going on. But then boys keep doing that is a way of learning subsistence skills. And girls start doing childcare, learning how to do childcare. And so how do you mentalize? Well, mentalizing is about Trying to understand the internal motivation of the other person. Okay. So, what I say is, we're mind readers, humans are mind readers, but we're not very good mind readers. But we put a lot of work into it, right? So, what do boys start to internalize, mentalize? The animals they hunt. What do girls preferentially mentalize? Other human beings, and especially younger ones. And I think, you know, that's where the cultural stuff starts to
1: build on top of the biology and top of the psychology. For the sake of rounding us back to the the beginning here, I want to think about where we go with this. So we have a nice, interesting model for something that's really important. And I would say your study, although we know a few anthropologists who are looking specifically at at adrenarchy, right? As opposed to your adolescence now. And you point to several avenues for testing this so what do you propose as the next step what are are your future plans what do you see as the most important thing that we do with this model to go back to the beginning remember i said i thought evolution was the most powerful
2: idea i'd seen so so as a human biologist i want to know the mechanisms here right i mean and and then evolutionarily where should i go look for the mechanisms at hunter among hunter-gatherers and You know, many societies, subsistence societies can tell us a lot about mechanisms under energy constraints, but only hunter-gatherers can really tell us all that stuff. So I started working with Karen Kramer, University of Utah, because I mentioned that point about metabolizing fat, and it turns out, it's really quite remarkable, we know very little about the development of adiposity in hunter-gatherers. You know, it's that's what the specialist always says, of course. It's not that we don't know anything, but we don't know that much. So we we have a paper about the development of adiposity among the Pume. I'm also working on a paper about adiposity among the Johansi with this wonderful data that Nancy Howell collected 50 years ago. I really, you know, want, I want a certificate of archival research. can you guys give me one? I, so
0: I think this is so important for human biologists. And this is yeah. also harkens back to Morgan Hoke's work. And we've had Morgan Hoke on this show before talking about adiposity and the role it plays in development. And so this is a theme that I think is gaining a lot of steam in our field.
2: Well, well, think about think about it. Third trimester is about putting on fat. I mean, that's most of what that weight is. Babies use mother's milk to put on fat. Then they lose it. Then you have the five to eight adiposity rebound, so-called. You know, you, there's a, there's a transient increase in boys just to initiate puberty. And, of course, girls put on all this fat to, to get the energy to have babies. I mean, it's a very intricately timed system about adiposity. Yeah. So, anyway... So that's, and, and so, you know, this is building up the background, but uh, I'm also working with Sam Merlacher down at Baylor, and we have a NSF Bioanthro grant in that, uh, you know, I'm not really on tenor hooks, but we're supposed to hear something pretty soon. And then um, we're going to uh, apply to Leaky Foundation as well. Uh, the Jauncey are really interesting place for this. Uh, they're not, they're not foragers anymore, but um, having been there... Boy, they're they're not that different in many ways. You know, they're still leading a very much um, energetically constrained life. But also, and this is the thing we don't know, and we'll be able to do this, learn about this is, you know, they they and the Turkana are the two leanest populations in Africa. So, if you want to look at energy constrained populations, that's a place to go. And by the way they've been in that environment well time out of mind you know at least 50,000 years and we don't know if it's
1: 300,000 years so there's a very interesting adaptive story there i'm always impressed with how synthetic you are and it it you know it sounds like your strategy is to to use for, for a large part the tons of data that are still underexplored that are out there. So I applaud that. And it's a great time to remember that we don't need to go out and bug people for new data all the time when there are tons out there to help us answer some really old questions. So are you, are you recruiting students? Do you have any advertising that you need to do? Do you have any? I'd be happy to have students work with me. I
2: think, you know, the thing that's exciting is to get to go to the field. So uh, that, takes a, that takes both intellectually prepared and, you know, a certain personality, right? You know, if somebody wants to do that with me, I think we'll have some money pretty soon. It can take a while to get money, right, uh, to go to the field. And uh, so, you know, the easiest way to look me up is just go to the UWM, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Anthropology Department website. I have a faculty page.
0: We always like to end each of our interviews with what we call our quote unquote, fun question. And it is, what do you do for fun? Uh, What do you read or watch for non-work time? And even if that includes reading anthropology in your non-work time, that is okay, because we all
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, well, so first of all, you know, with COVID, I, I'm sure we've all found it so difficult, but the but one benefit is there is time to go if you have if you have already have data or you know you, you there's data already available you can do that. Um, I'm not saying I do that for fun. I, I I do really like the theater, I like literature, but theater presents it to you in this embodied way that's just so wonderful sometimes. But I really what I really like is the outdoors, so I get out as much as I can. I, Uh, Here in Milwaukee, it's a little tough, but I found one state park where you actually can get away from the car noise, and there are these wonderful old oaks, and, you know, it's just just very nice, so I really enjoy that. Is it snowy up there right now? Well, you know, it's not. We had just a little bit of snow on Sunday, and then we had a big rainstorm, so sorry, Alabama,
1: you know, <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we are, we're cold and rainy here too. So yeah, we're not any, we're not any better. No, oh, that's good.
0: I think the Midwest this year, we're going to have that same kind of thing where we don't bother getting any snow until the end of January and into February, that it's just going to be cold and gray for like two months. And then finally real winter hits.
2: Yeah. So, so treasure your Christmas tree, because remember that was the origin, you know, the Celts and other Norwich Europeans had to get through that dark, cold time, so they needed some light.
0: Ben, thank you so much. I'm not even entirely sure you and I have ever met in person, if I think about it.
2: Well, I, we have. I'll let you think about it, and I'll tell you where it was next time. Okay. Well, I can
0: only imagine it was a conference, but I couldn't even tell you which city. Uh, <laughs> my memory for such things is terrible. Uh, but it's nice to have a full-on conversation with you this time around, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well thank you for having me. And like I say, I think you guys are doing a real service. So you
1: know, I I love talking to Ben. Um, I love talking to him at every conference because he's always so complimentary of all the work that we do. So we'll just keep booking in week after week. It's such a pleasure to be acknowledged by someone who is such a grand synthesizer and thinks so broadly about everything. So I'm glad that you appreciate what we do and thank you so much for joining us to talk about the going into the weeds of the brain. I would I love this stuff as you know. So, thank you so much. Yeah, okay. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.